You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. This week, we have the audio from the February 16th FPA DFW You're a Financial Planner, Now What? seminar. Last Thursday's seminar was led by Hannah Moore from Guiding Wealth Management and Casey Cooper from Caden Capital. They sat down to discuss how virtual planning is being used now and how it will impact the profession. Virtual planning is changing the profession and bringing with it opportunity for planners willing to adapt. We're sure that you guys, our listeners, will be a part of that. Now, here are your hosts, Hannah and Casey. I thought today that we could talk about virtual planning because I think that's definitely a hot topic. Um, I don't know if you guys are on Twitter, uh, but the T3 conference is going on right now. And so a lot of my Twitter feed has been kind of consumed with this in the last couple of days. So it's uh, pretty good timing for it. Um, so I don't know, Casey, I thought we could just start with like, what is virtual planning? Because I think mm-hmm. that, that those definitions vary quite a bit, um, but they all kind of do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, really the one that resonated most with me whenever I was just refreshing myself on the topic is it's uh, being able to be location independent. You know, it's a very clinical definition. You know, you can work with anyone, anywhere, you know, any way. But maybe more importantly, uh, it's being able to structure your practice in a way that supports your life and hopefully tied to what your values are so that everything is supported together and you'll be able to interact in, you know, in a comfortable way that, that's genuine and comfortable and, and gets your personal life interacting with your business life in the way that you want. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You're almost saying like virtual planning is like the lifestyle practice. And I think... To a degree, it can be. It can be, yeah. Yeah. And I think if you're going to do a lifestyle practice, it's almost essential Mm -hmm. to have it be virtual. Yeah. Now, are you guys... Could you, are you guys virtual or are you guys still pretty tied we to the office? We can be. I, I would argue that everybody is virtual because we all have conference calls. You know, we all certainly have video conference capabilities at this point. You know, Whether we want to or not, no one has 100% of their clients local because inevitably people move. So we have to be virtual. It's just not the predominance of what we do. Now, you know, as we're a younger generation and more and more influential within the practice, we do more and more of it. And uh, in fact, most of the clients that I work, uh, have sourced, are not from Dallas. You know, whatever reason, just that's not a hurdle for me, but for Caden itself, probably 90% of our clients and revenue, if, it, if they're not in Dallas now, they at least started here. Our uh, practice also uses the planning software that it's all interactive stream-based already. And with technology, it's so easy to share your screen with the clients mm-hmm. and indicate with a mouse. It's, it's almost like you're in the room. It's mm-hmm. pretty similar to what our experience is already. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's interesting too. Like, uh, clients are driving that decision. Um, I remember back when I was at the broker dealer, my largest client, um, she wanted, she didn't want to travel. She, mm-hmm. she was in Dallas, but she was just like, you know, I want to do these meetings. Can we just Skype? And you just send me everything and we mm-hmm. can just work through it virtually. So I think clients are gravitating towards that too. Right. Yeah, there's certainly a convenience factor to it. Um, you know, to me, it's really just client driven. You know, whatever is best for them, that's what I want to do, assuming it's feasible to do so. And so certainly if there was an express interest from them, I would absolutely do it that way. We haven't been so proactive with local clients about offering that. And, you know, it would help us if we did. It's certainly more convenient. We're typically more efficient whenever we operate that way. I don't know why, but we are. Um, 
interesting thought that you're sparring yeah. there for me. Well, and I think, so like with my firm, I'm essentially virtual. Like I could be a completely virtual, I mean, every piece of paper is scanned in, mm -hmm. like everything I need is in the cloud. Um, so I, I can be virtual, but that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. And so even with like staff, I know one of the big trends is to do like the VAs and things like that, where I'm like, I actually need somebody in person. Like I need to be able to sit across the table from them and work things out that way versus over email. And so I know that's a huge trend for young people, but it's never resonated with me. Now, while, you know, I assume this is a, there's a spectrum here of completely yeah. virtual versus completely location dependent. Uh, but there's co-working spaces. You know, the Grove is an example of that downtown where you don't have to have an office and you're going there to be in a center, hopefully to meet people. And, uh, you know, you can still have private conversations, but without the need for a traditional office or maybe even traditional staff or support, you know, especially uh, if you're working with younger clients, because that's generally speaking who is in the co-working type spaces. And, and it's a way to slide down the spectrum of, you know, heading toward a lifestyle practice or just being truly virtual um, without having to have huge overhead. Mm -hmm. Well, and so for me, because most of my clients, like I primarily work with boomers, like that's kind of my demographic. And so I, having an office is, I think, really important to them. And so even though I work from home primarily, I still meet them mm -hmm. in a nice office. Mm -hmm. But the cost for that's $350 a month. Mm -hmm. And there's just so many options that are available now that are inexpensive that mm -hmm. you can really build something out without having to pay thousands of dollars a month in overhead. Yeah, I mean, corner bakeries are an option. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's really limited to our creativity, clients' houses, uh, you know, there's plenty of options along those lines. Executive suites are another good option. Uh, that can give you the flexibility to have multiple locations you know, spread across the Metroplex or even in different cities uh, where for a single cost or, you know, multiple arrangements, uh, you can manage it based on time spent and have dedicated resources like a front office staff and copying machine and, and things that are important to a business, even if you're paperless. Yeah, and knowing what your clients want. Mm -hmm. So I have these boomers who, you know, my target client's one to five million, mm -hmm. and they expect some level of professionalism. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't, like, I, I worry that... They would view me as like a fly-by-night person if I didn't have that front or I was trying to meet them in a co-working or corner bakery or something like that. Yeah. But knowing my clients, like I know what they need. And thankfully I found a low-cost option mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so virtual planning. I also thought of like robo-advisors. So I don't know, Casey, if you kind of went down Yeah, I thought about that a little bit. Um, specifically when I was thinking about that, I was debating are they our competition? And while that question gets brought up a lot, generally speaking, I don't feel like they're, a, they're much competition currently for comprehensive financial planners like ourselves. They're certainly competition on the asset management side simply because they are doing, managing in a similar way, trying to be tax and cost efficient, um, being well diversified, trying to be disciplined, and doing so in a cost effective manner. So from that perspective, they are competition However, I think all of the extra things that we bring to the table more than justify our higher cost structure. Uh, truly, it just comes down to how we differentiate ourselves from that, communicate the difference, and, and really demonstrate that you know, we provide similar services or hopefully better on the investment management side, more tailored you know, and at a reasonable cost, and then the rest that they pay is for 
this huge breadth of services that they value. You know, that will be a challenge over time as Betterment and other solutions, I would imagine, get more and more into the financial planning realm and provide those additional services and have a real person that the, you know, our target clients have access to. Um, so I, I don't see them as a big competition right now to us personally, but to our industry in general, yes, it, it's going to be an increasing challenge. Um, additionally, on that front, where uh, I can see the virtual planner having a, maybe a, a slight amount more competition from Betterment and, and those types of services uh, is a loss of that personal connection when not meeting face-to-face -face as a matter of course. You know, if, if you aren't using that opportunity to bond with clients, there could be a little bit less resistance on a move down the road. Now, that may be me projecting our current structure and justifying you know, why I like having an office and meeting with clients regularly, but nonetheless, I do see that personal connection being strong and helpful for us, and, and conversely, that could be a challenge if you're a virtual planner. I had a client uh, recently, I was talking to them and they were a newer client and a little bit younger than my target demographic. And one of the comments that he made was, he's like, I just don't want to call into a call center and have somebody not mm -hmm. even know who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, that's a really good perspective. Mm -hmm. And they're at the higher, I mean, they obviously have some assets to manage, so they're, they're willing to pay that premium for that, somebody knowing who they are when they call and knowing that their phone call is going to get returned. And, yeah, and to that point, I think it's critical to not only differentiate, but to find a voice if, if pursuing a virtual planner path. Uh, Katie Brewer does a fantastic job of this. Hannah, you do as well, uh, albeit she's deeper on the uh, virtual planner end of the spectrum. Um, but you know, whether it's LinkedIn, blogging, having a web presence, video capabilities, resources that are made available, whatever it is, people need to be able to find you better. You, know, you don't have a, an office necessarily that you're going to have neighbors across the hall that would stumble into you and, and whatever else, uh, you know, perception-wise would be the benefit of having a traditional office. Clearly to differentiate, it, having that online presence is, uh, it's clearly critical. I think everybody realizes that, but tailoring that to how your personality can best come across and your services and offerings can come across I, I think that would be step one for me if I was heading the route of virtual planning, identifying how I would communicate that. Well, it's, so one of the, a uh, couple years ago, I had like the moment where I somebody had said, it was actually in one of these meetings, where they said that people hire you for who you are and like for like the person, like people hire Hannah for me and like the relationship with me. And I'm pretty sure I just felt like had a mini anxiety attack because I realized that. <laughs> but I think it's so true. And like, how do you let yourself be yourself in your practice? Like yeah. that comes through through client gifts or how I structure meetings. And it's like that experience and like letting your personality come out in how you service clients. It's absolutely terrifying, but I think that gives you better, better success with clients. When, oh. Along this, these lines, um, the differentiation and having an online presence, have you learned anything, I know you've learned a lot from it, but what did you learn as critical first steps when developing that or critical missteps that you would encourage others to avoid? So when I look at personal branding, I try to look outside of financial planning. And so I've looked at a lot of the bloggers and I still feel like I'm at the early steps of this. So I don't feel like I have a strong, like I haven't 
I feel like I have a lot of knowledge I haven't implemented as much mm -hmm. as I want to, and so that's definitely what we're focusing on this year. But if I look to a lot of the bloggers out there, they're, they're very, very niche down, how they talk, what they talk about. Um, I think, you know, when I look at financial planner blogs, they're talking about um, the three things you need to know about long-term care. Or, you know, just how, the topics that they're talking about, I don't know, resonate. Let me say this better. Sorry, I'm rambling. The topics that financial planners talk about and how they talk about it is not what I see in the blogging world with how the bloggers are like communicating. So the blogging world is much more personal stories. They're really owning that first person viewpoint. Whereas financial blogs or financial planning firms, they're very third person. And I think that there's some transition there um, because doing your firm as the front versus an individual as a front. And so I don't know what the media, like the happy medium on that is, but it's just been very interesting to see. Is that, partly driven by our limitations on testimonials and direct stories? Do you think it's a compliance CYA telling everything in third person? Um, I don't think so, because I feel like you can easily get around the compliance stuff. You know, you can still tell stories that happen in your practice and mm -hmm. not be a testimonial. And like you can change, like Jeff Rose, I know he does it a lot. And you know, one of the things he says is that he'll usually change the gender of the, the story that he's telling or, you know, change things so the client doesn't know that it was mm -hmm. about them. But it's fine to tell stories. You just can't have so I, I don't, mm -hmm. yeah, so, so it's Makes not sense. quite a testimonial, but I think it's more that people are afraid to put themselves out there as much um, because usually, you know, financial advisors, we're, we're the experts, you know, are, are we willing to show that maybe we, what we don't know or what have we learned or, you know, those things like that. I think that requires a little bit more vulnerability um, than maybe what advisors want to show. Whose blogs would you recommend that we start reading? If we're kind of new to so I think planning. yeah I think the best financial advisor blog hands mm -hmm. down well not hands down the best one is probably Brittany Castro Brittany Castro yeah of uh, uh, financially wise financially wise women um, she I think gets it um, she's one of them um, Lauren Grootman um, she used to mm -hmm. I think it's just her name now but she used to be I am that lady. Uh, she she's another really good person to follow. Um, she her story is she was in forty thousand dollars of credit card debt and how she got out of it and now she's kind of the expert on that. Um, the other ones I would say are just find out what interests you. So like look at a decorating blog. You know how do they do it? Like take those same concepts and just apply financial planning. Like you know and how how would we do that creatively? And I don't know that we've really explored hmm. enough of that of pulling in from other industries. Uh, another good resource, uh, there's a book called The Virtual Advisor, uh, written by XYZ Planning Network. Uh, it's uh, available for e-download. I'm sorry? Somebody introduced me to the XYZ mm -hmm. Network, and then I can't remember his name. Michael Kitsis. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the one I've been reading. That's the only one I've been yeah, they're like the leader of, you want to set up a financial plan, like a virtual planning firm right now, mm -hmm. like they are like the resource to go to. Absolutely. So yeah, if, if you ever get serious, I would encourage that as a definite resource to include, not necessarily be all end all, but uh, tried and tested uh, ideas are included in that. Um, 
So one thing I think is interesting kind of with virtual planning is how a lot of the, like Vanguard, Schwab, Betterment, even Wealthfront, they're all hiring CFPs now to provide financial planning with that with it. So I think as a industry slash profession, <laughs> we're, we're, they're getting that we have to mix the financial planning with the robo advisors, you know, if we define that as a mm-hmm. virtual planner. Yeah, one thing that I'm curious about, uh, and specifically I took this from uh, the virtual advisor, a snippet about that, is that you could work with clients anytime, anywhere. I don't know that being a virtual planner means that I'm beholden to being available 24 seven, but it certainly gives more flexibility to do so. Um, You know, for those that have kids or, you know, just odd life arrangements or goals, or just trying to fill a void that, you know, people are looking at this at night or on weekends because that's when they do their personal stuff. And I want to be able to be available whenever they want something right then. It does present interesting marketing opportunities or lifestyle choices for your business that, you know, again, just having traditional business hours does not accommodate. One of the interesting quotes, I saw it on Twitter in the last couple of days, Bob Veris, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, um, talked about, you know, as we're becoming like financial industry versus financial profession and like the difference that is. And he said, name one profession that works with only the wealthy besides financial planning. It's if we really want to be a profession, we have to be able to serve all demographics. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when you start looking at virtual planning and like mm-hmm. robos, it's in my view, one of the clear solutions for working with mm-hmm. people who don't have a lot of money. Yeah, it's completing the market. Yeah, it's yeah. completing the market and com- like rounding out the profession, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really, really interesting mm-hmm. if we start thinking about it that way. Yeah, it is. I, you know, the nice thing about that is hopefully more will have access to good information and, and, and good behavior and good decisions earlier. Um, but does that make them sticky to those solutions you know, when they do get to all of our desired targets and, and when they would have otherwise been prospective clients? I would imagine there's some stickiness and greater barriers. It's pretty rare at this point that we encounter someone that doesn't have a financial planner or advisor. You know, 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was pretty common that um, you know, someone just truly had done it on their own up to that point. Uh, so now it, it just will increasingly be that way that someone will always have a current relationship that they would be moving from in order to become a client of ours. Now, whether it's a robo and they don't have a personal connection to uh, you know, truly another planner or traditional financial advisor, there's somebody that they will be leaving in most cases. I'd argue that robos would be less sticky than the high school buddy that they, the only financial advisor they know. Maybe, yeah. We can all hope so. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> That, yeah, because that was one of the questions I had thought of too, is how do we, would people leave that, mm-hmm. that system and pay sometimes substantially more for even a 1% AUM fee? Mm-hmm. Or want to segregate asset management versus the everything else in wealth management. And then are we as profession ready for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be a challenge. I think there could be a shift to uh, more planning only with going out that side and maintain Vanguard or Betterment. 
yeah, I would see that as a big opportunity, you know, and maybe even layer on a slight amount of, uh, you know, five basis points or whatever to help someone do their risk tolerance so they're picking the right models within Betterment. I, I could see that existing, um, and I could see it being attractive. I'm seeing a lot of, like, retainer model. Um, I, I haven't completely bought into it. Um, I have some really good friends of mine who are 100% all retainer, Mm -hmm. um, you know, charging flat fees. Their billing is incredibly easy. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that'll end up taking off or not. Uh, you mentioned the word retainer and also Bob Veris recently. Uh, he had a recent article where he mentioned that, uh, it's, this is not a direct quote, this is an inference from me, but he was essentially equating uh, the word retainer to becoming a four-letter word uh, for our industry. Specifically because in the legal industry, a retainer is money that's essentially in an escrow account until build hours draw that down. And if work isn't uh, done for the client on their behalf, then money is returned back to the client. Whereas in our industry, that's not the case. You know, a retainer has a different meaning. It's money that makes us available. We're an available presence. We're overseeing things without necessarily doing. Uh, and there's virtually never money returned to the client. So he was suggesting that maybe the word retainer should get updated in our industry to, you know, an, uh, uh, a fixed monthly fee that makes us available and then you list out the rest of what you would be doing for that. I don't know if that's going to be necessary, but nonetheless, he was pointing out that that could be a sticking point uh, for regulation of our industry, given the lawyers that would be dealing with it, it has a different meaning to them. And I think that's, yeah, because he also came out with what the regulators were saying about retainer yeah. and how like there's getting a lot of feedback from regulators of like, mm -hmm. well, you have to define this fee. The nice thing about AUM is you can tie it directly to assets. You can say like, here's mm -hmm. how I set this up. And one of the problems with retainers is how do you how do you decide how much I get paid? Like you mm -hmm. charge me versus the next person. Right. And there's not a clear answer yet. And so I think that's going to be hard. And like, how do we justify our fee? Yeah. But tying it back to the virtual planner. While the AUM model is very easy to justify and clear, whenever you start comparing against robo-solutions or just streamlined uh, virtual planner solutions, on a apples to oranges comparison, we look expensive in our current model because we're not segregating out where our cost versus our value is. And if we were to differentiate those components and in all of those places we can add value are needed by the client, we're not expensive. But it's a it's a hard thing to communicate. Are you guys all AUM? Virtually, yeah. Virtually, yeah. yeah. So have you guys thought about breaking out like the financial planning fee from the investment management fee? We've talked about it a little bit, and we have a couple of cases where we do charge retainers just because of the, uh, the complexity and the hours and the time and the value we can bring. Uh, it cannot be accommodated for in the assets under management for the, the client specifically. But to this point, it's been our strong preference to do AUM exclusively. Yeah, that's definitely the camp that I've fallen in as yeah. well. And I, I struggle with this because a lot of my clients, you know, we do a lot of work up front for planning. So I charge, mm -hmm. you know, three to 5000 for every financial plan at mm -hmm. the front end. And, and we do monitor the plan every year. But if we've already looked at their insurance, how often does your insurance change? Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's a life event, it's a dramatic change. And so I don't know. I've never been able to, I know that I'm not, on the cutting edge of mm -hmm. what's happening in the in the profession, but I've never been able to wrap my head around that or really internalize it to where I could actually like 
convince clients that this is a good idea? Yeah, in, in our case, it's really just that, you know, for the true target clients that are coming in that fit our practice or what we're looking for, the financial planning process, the, the initial extra work that we would have to do, we're willing to eat that for a good long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and if someone's not willing to commit to a full, deep relationship with us, they probably just aren't the right mix for us, given uh, given the low concentration of clients we have for the firm, our, you know, our resources that we have available. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, though, we're still considering how do we offer services to younger professionals that will grow with high confidence, grow into our target clients you know, in the not too distant future. Well, they don't have the assets under management to bill in our current structure, and we don't want to temper significantly the services that we're offering them. And so th it's a real new idea for us, and it's going to be a delicate balance, but how do we appropriately and reasonably charge for you know, the younger client that doesn't have a lot of wealth, but they have a lot of important decisions they need to make. And you know, it's a com uh, conversation many are struggling with, but you know, it's important and it's one we need to address. I was, so these are the conversations that I have with my friends. Uh, but I was talking to a friend of mine who's very much in the marketing world and kind of about that, mm -hmm. that dilemma. And her response was, so you're basically getting paid to have a sales funnel of clients. Like, and it was like, that's a really interesting way of looking at that, of you know, instead of going out and finding you know, cold clients, you have these warm clients mm -hmm. who you know that in 10 years are gonna be your ideal clients. Mm -hmm. And instead of just you know, trying to maintain that relationship, you're, they're paying you to maintain them as right. leads for your ideal practice. So right. that's a very interesting yeah, perspective. Yeah, but balance that against we have a current life practice in our situation that we don't want to subsidize that. Yep. You know, we do need to uh, charge appropriately for that, that lead generation, essentially, yeah. uh, if that's what we call it. Um, and then secondly, how big does that funnel need to get and how does that impact staffing and other decisions? You know, ideally, you would be you know, really good at picking those that are going to turn into good long-term clients, but I have no idea what that looks like yet. That's the scariest part to me. Yeah. You know, do we take on way too many of those in the hopes that a few turn out? Or do we really just limit it to those that we really, really have confidence in? And then it's a, a smaller funnel. Mm -hmm. Probably our critical decision to consider. Yeah, it's, yeah, definitely an interesting time to, mm -hmm. and I think what's great is, you know, the CFP board's doing all of their advertising. And, mm -hmm. and if you look at like their marketing, they're targeting towards people who have 250,000 to a million dollars. Um, is kind of, and they're raising the awareness of CFP and how important financial planning is. And so I think that there's a greater demand for financial planning. Like I think the consumer is getting more educated. So the younger clients or the younger professionals are now looking for a financial advisor. And I'm not sure it's all that easy for them to find. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for a practice like ours, I expect that a stronger virtual presence is going to be necessary if we make the move into you know, the emerging professional uh, you know, market to some degree, uh, you know, A, because it might attract more, and B, because it would be a way for us to manage our time and cost for that segment. You know, again, I don't know what it looks like, but it's a, it's a challenge we'll deal with. 
and like approaching your or, practice like a business rather than, I feel like a lot of advisors just kind of go with the flow, and but thinking through it as a business decision I think is really, really important. Yeah, and I think it's uh, good leadership for our clients if we do treat practices as a business. Uh, you know, we're probably a little bit off topic today, but uh, I think that's an interesting element of virtual planning. You know, if you're trying to manage cost and, and doing it partly as a way to keep overhead low and give flexibility, telling that story to the clients that, you know, it is a benefit to them as well. It's a benefit to me as the planner. You know, these are good business decisions. You know, we're focusing on what's best for not just us, but you. All of those have, have a very impactful story embedded in it that, you know, if communicated could uh, generate some seriously positive results for your practice. That consistent story. Mm -hmm. I think that's, yeah. Going back to the earlier of like the branding and like different bloggers, the, the most successful people have that same storyline mm -hmm. through everything that they do. Yeah. yeah. And that ties back to the, my opening comments on uh, what to me virtual planners are. And if you push it to the lifestyle uh, practice, you know, where you're starting to incorporate your values, it's very easy to have that consistent message because you have a single decision point for everything that you do. Is it supporting ultimately who I am? And if it is and what you want the business to be and then what kind of clients you want to work with, you know, it's going to be remarkably easier to get that consistent message than if you're just making independent decisions and trying to tie it back to that. Mm -hmm. what, what software components or applications are most conducive to Cloud-based, obviously. Yeah, it's cloud-based, yeah. <laughs> no, like, what are yeah. the most essential features that you expect or that clients expect? Um, I think the most essential thing when you start talking about virtual is like the client wants a seamless process. Mm -hmm. And so like one of the strongest points of like Betterment mm -hmm. is their account application is so easy. The client can go on there and in five minutes open up all of their accounts. And like, I don't know why that technology hasn't come over to Pershing and TD and like all of these big places, but I think that's the number one advantage that most of like the robo-advisors, um, what they have uh, for, you know, financial planners. So I have a lot of friends who are in that virtual planning space for younger clients. They're still looking for like the financial planning solution. Um, Sophia Bear is a really big one. She doesn't have a planning software. She does, you know, she's like, there's no software out there that really is meeting that that market demand. So I think it's really hard, but I think knowing, you know, a good client vault, a good, you know, how are clients gonna be able to watch? Mm -hmm. Is there an app? You know, that's those are all big mm -hmm. decisions, I think, when you start looking at that virtual advisor. Yeah, and then the platforms for communication, obviously LinkedIn, okay. Facebook, those are those are readily available and good and easy, but as you go to the next step of a website and a blog and what kind of capabilities you want on there and not just now, but as you look into the future, hopefully you can can have a clear path so you're building it flexibly to start with. Um, but ultimately, you have to be able to take care of clients, and that goes back to having the right solutions for, you know, uh, seamless account opening to the extent you can have, um, secure, yeah. very secure, uh, everything. Uh, you have to be able to maintain protected information. Um, you know, one misstep there and, and, and practice could be done. Literally, we can't stress that enough. Um, so being sure that you understand the security implications of any software 
Uh, I would put that as a very high priority. And then planning solutions. While there isn't a perfect one out there that ties to everything, there's a lot of cloud-based softwares that mm -hmm. uh, give you the tools and flexibility you need. That will largely depend on uh, you know, to what degree you want to go into financial planning. Do you want it to be goal-based or cash flow-based? It, it's a lengthy, lengthy discussion and decision tree, uh, but the right software is not the same for everybody. Yeah. The one I've heard most virtual planners talk about is Right Capital um, as an option that they're... Not familiar with that. What, it's, it's a really... R-I-G-H-T? Yeah. It's a really new software that's coming out. And, and I think their target is that young professional, you know, the high income, mm -hmm. low, low assets. Do you think a firm needs to be either virtual or traditional brick and mortar, or do traditional firms have a vision to develop a virtual segment or virtual department? Like when a client moves yeah. away, mm -hmm. then we're going to have our virtual advisor become their new lead contact. I haven't thought about that before, but I would imagine increasingly you know, companies that have a, a physical presence will migrate that direction. Uh, if, if for no other reason than uh, study after study shows millennials do everything online and they will start receiving inheritances and are starting to have higher incomes and in some cases starting to have first jobs. Uh, so there will be more opportunity to prospect within the world and you want to communicate in their realm. Uh, so yeah, I, I anticipate that. I just don't know the rate of adoption will be significant. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, I think good business practice is to go, in general, towards the cloud and towards that virtual. I mean, mm -hmm. scanning all your documents, it's a lot safer to have them backed up in multiple servers around the country than your hard copy that's in your office that, God forbid, there's a fire and it's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, I th so I think that there's a lot of direction. Going towards virtual planning is good business. Um, and I think there's some really big RAs and like successful firms who are starting to fake, try to be like, how do we handle this? There's a huge opportunity. There's a huge gap. What do we do? And I think a lot of people are just, we don't, we don't know yet. And so I started to see several people or several places just start popping up of kind of just trying to see if they can make something work. So it'll be really interesting, I think, in the next couple of years of how, how do we reach this mass market? And is an RAA the best way to do it? I mean, there has to be that question too, you know? Dave Ramsey, he's providing financial advice every day, you know, on his radio show, reaching millions and millions of people. Like, is that the solution? I, I don't know. One other aspect of the virtual office that I find intriguing is that there's probably a bit more, uh, beyond the flexibility, there's a bit more potential for intentionality and forward thinking. Uh, you have more, with that flexibility, you can be purposeful about what you're trying to go after, a niche or adaptability to whatever comes in the future. Uh, you know, that's a scary proposition in some ways to me. I, I'm not one that, that takes change lightly, but nonetheless, I recognize that things won't always be the same and to be able to be a first reactor once you make a decision, um, that would be very nice in some situations. So the virtual planner, again, you know, just being able to, uh, you know, use an example, like if you were a planner in Detroit 15 years ago, that might have been great until every business moved out of town and, and you were decimated. The virtual planners could have picked up and left much easier than someone that had a five-year lease. Uh, 
you know, that, that's not something that could have been reasonably predicted. Um, but if the next time that happens in some major market, it could happen in Dallas. You know, as crazy it might sound, there could be regulation that uh, tremendously limits oil and gas production. And the state of Texas could be tremendously harmed. As a result, we could institute a state income tax. And all of these dominoes could topple that end a lot of the reasons why our economy has been so strong. You know, how would we react to that? I, you know, I've never done contingency planning on you know, some Armageddon-type scenarios like that for, uh, for our local economy. But again, the virtual planner can adjust to those types of things because they just have less to unwind. And that's not necessarily something that's intentional. You're not looking for a specific opportunity. But you could also go down that route and say, as whatever new technology pops up, you know, we want to be in a position to quickly test, uh, find a way to incorporate it, and adopt it. You know, whatever that might be. I'm not creative enough. Charlie, you might be the, the best <laughs> of us to, to think about what those new technologies might be that could support a practice. Um, but that would be what I would try to figure out is how I would quickly identify, assess, and adopt technologies and ideas in a virtual world. I was talking with an advisor, I think it was on the podcast, who they had been in the business for like 30 years or something something like that. And so I asked him about like like change in the profession. And their response was, there's been more change in the last five years than there's been in the 25 years prior to it. And so I think that we're entering this time of very, very high change. And how, how does anybody respond to that? And how do you, you know, mm-hmm. if we close our eyes and just you know, nose to the ground for five years, the profession might look completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, again, I keep bringing up Sophia Bear because she's kind of like this leader of virtual planning. But she, I mean, she's made comments about in five years, are we even going to call what we do financial planning? Like, we don't even know. Like, what, you know, is it going to be more the blogging world, the more that Dave Ramsey, or is it, you know, so I don't know. I think there's a lot of changes um, that are coming, and how do you adapt to change? I mean, mm-hmm. that's a bigger question than just financial planning firms. Whether to get resources you've done that on the you know, upcoming software types that could be game changers that you're at least a little bit ahead of it. Where do we see the changes going? Yeah, um, yeah when, when Betterment or RoboAdvisors first started coming out, you know, who saw that first? Is there a website or a, any uh, periodicals that you found that are That are kind of ahead of it? Um, obviously, Michael Kitts is. He's pretty on the front edge of that. Um, for conferences, because I'm a, I love conferences. Um, again, I always push this FPA retreat. If you want to look at what are like the forward-thinking ideas of financial planning, FPA retreat is like the must-go-to conference. Um, a lot of for younger people, next-gen gathering. That's a huge one. Um, I know a lot of the virtual planning. I, like I was there when they started talking about this idea, and it was kind of where a lot of the ideas got started. Um, that's a really good place to go. Um, where do I personally think it's a lot of it's going to happen? I think we're going to get outside industries coming into financial planning. I think that's how real change and like drastic measures happen. Um, I, so I think the fiduciary was a huge game changer, is a huge game changer, and we have no idea how that's going to play out. Um, I think a lot of the blogging worlds like FinCon, um, I think that world is going to kind of collide with financial planning, and that's where we're going to see a lot of those like growth. It's going to be where do, where do those intersect? Um, but that's my personal thoughts of just where I see things. 
And I think we're going to get more human with our money. Like I feel like when you know we talk about like what are blogs that our financial advisors have that they're so sterile. And I feel like the people who are going to be able to engage in more of that emotional side um, are going to be able to, they're going to get better traction than others. Now, I don't know what that looks like, but I think that's mm-hmm. going to be one change we see. What's going to separate successful advisors? Because there's so many programs out there right now where you can go and you can pay for marketing content. You can go pay for, the, you can go pay for 10 blogs a month on your, you know, on your blog, and it's going to, always have new content, but is that content going to resonate with people? And I think we need to do a better job of figuring out what actually resonates with our target audiences. Yeah, yeah the emotional uh, intelligence uh, has been you know, focused as long as I've been in the industry, but it's largely been centered around face-to-face with a meeting, mm-hmm. maybe your, your written communication. Uh, it certainly is a natural extension to take it to the present, you know, web presence or, or whatever digital format it would be to where it's a, uh, a broader market. Uh, I've recently started writing a quarterly newsletter. Uh, I've done two in the past year. And that's the first pieces that I've ever written for an audience bigger than one client. Mm-hmm. And it is so drastically outside of any skill I possess. It's, it's a very labor-intensive, difficult process to go through. Um, so yeah, if you, if you have not written or spoke to a generic audience, uh, that is something I would definitely encourage you to uh, practice and start polishing up on and reading about. And, and I think the best idea I took for, away from you today is look at other industries, you know, mm-hmm. something that you're interested in, see who does it well, and then try to steal those ideas and incorporating it. And probably a lot of those ideas is, is going to be centered around how it's communicated. Um, you know, what resonates, what, what simplifies a message, uh, what catches your attention so you would even look at it to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the emotional intelligence, I, I haven't been in any conference where that has been talked about in the virtual world. And certainly that, that's a place that will get attention in the coming years. Mm-hmm. I like that emotional intelligence in the virtual world. You can quote me on that. I haven't read <laughs> that anywhere, so it's Casey, the attributed to Casey. <laughs> When you know when you're in college, they always say like your skill sets like val- like what you learn, like fifty percent of it's going to be obsolete. Mm-hmm. You know, right at, like as soon as you graduate, and you know, and, and looking at I forget what the percentages are of how many jobs, you know, like the people going to college now their jobs haven't even been created. Like we don't even know what mm-hmm. they are, and so I think it's a very sobering thing of you know how do we approach that as advisors, how, as firms, how do we approach. You know those skill sets, and I think you know the skill sets. Our skill sets are going to have to be adapted. You know, going forward, I think the core of what we do as financial planners is always going to stay the same. But how do we communicate that? How do we, you know, what needs to be adapted? Mm-hmm. In a natural extension, is communicate that to clients as a lesson. You know, if we are needing to be adaptable, needing to change, needing to adjust, we'll work with people that are business owners or executives and, and need to understand that from their perspective. And it's just one more thing that makes our, our profession unique because we have the ability to see it and experience it personally for ourselves and then communicate it to a broader audience. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully in a way that will be beneficial to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
kind of one of my other thoughts just about this topic in general was how do like we mesh like how do virtual planners mesh with like where you are now and like your firms and I was thinking of um, you know I used a lot of third-party money managers as kind of it, they're essentially like a robo technology so you know clients were going through there and then my, the clients weren't being invested there and then I was charging a fee on top of that and what's interesting is I'm actually almost all of my clients are away from that now and I'm managing it directly because of iRebell through TD um, and various like the technology's been developed for me to be able to create a system around that where I can really customize that. So I feel like there's a lot of ways where we can, not exploit, but we can use this technology and really leverage it to give our clients, I mean, my clients now have lower costs for all of their investing than they did before. And so there's a lot of ways that we can pair it up really well. So you've gone through that iteration of change mm -hmm. and then there will be another yeah. iteration of change. How, how have you or how would you uh, position that to clients that this is the best solution for now? One of the, well, the recent change, it was pretty easy of saying, you know, your costs are going to go down. Like, I've studied this. Like, this is, you know, I have all of these reasons for believing it. I had uh, a friend one time, she was getting, she was getting her MBA and her focus was change management, which I thought was kind of crazy. Uh, but one of the things that she said was, whenever there's change, the thing that people care about most is not about you, it's how does it affect them. And so uh, I was going through a change with work. Um, I think this was actually when I was buying the practice. And because I was at, like, how do I position this or whatever? And she was like, always, your message is always, how is it going to make it better for them? And so that's kind of really stuck with me. So like mm -hmm. when I talk to clients and I'm ever recommending a change, it's not, this is going to create efficiencies for me or you know, anything like mm -hmm. that. It's all about the client. And if I can't put it in terms of why it benefits them, then I shouldn't be doing it. Do you plant the seed that you're always looking for opportunities to oh, improve yeah. costs. So is, that's just a normal conversation. Yeah. And then when the time comes for change, it's it's an yeah. extension of that. And yeah, and you hit it on the head there, you know, where you're always saying, you know, my job is to always be the one looking for mm -hmm. the best opportunities and the best things for you. And, and so while this is what we're doing now, there obviously could be different changes down the road. Um, and that's what I think clients hire us for mm -hmm. is the change in their life. And, so, like, I think, mm -hmm. I don't know, I think people intuitively understand that. That's a big value add because that means they don't have to keep looking out right. for these yeah. things. Someone's looking for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't read the article, but I did see a, a blurb from one the other day, and it was something about how mutual fund managers, underperforming ones, are like eight times more likely to be fired than the financial advisor that recommended it. And mm -hmm. so. You know, it's amusing to think that you know while we're out there you know looking to improve uh, and maybe the client doesn't have to uh, you know the the perception at some point is we do need to make sure we're picking good solutions and hopefully the 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 new thing that comes along is just an improvement not because we you know inherently made wrong choices in the past those happen but by and large hopefully it's progress yeah yeah and it yeah it goes back to what's our value add for the client mm -hmm as financial planners, you know, is it the returns or is it the planning and the planning process right. that we take our clients through? Right. Emma, you've been quiet. Do you have like a list of 10 questions or thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Fill in um, the gaps of what we didn't cover? I guess one thing I kind of keep thinking about is I think you mentioned that like virtual meetings on your side, you're a lot more efficient. And so, yeah. um, but like one like 
what does that look like? Like, are we actually more efficient in breaking these? And then also like client response, are they more active in their response to virtual meetings than in-person meetings? I think the reason I'm more efficient is um, we're not going to be face-to-face. -face. I'm not going to be in our office. So I have to be very, very pointed about what I prepare and think through how I'm going to present it because I won't be there to necessarily see their reaction. And even if we had a video, it's not going to be the same thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe I put a bit more prep into it if it's virtual, just because I know there's some additional potential complication and I want to be over prepared. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, we get less off track. We're on target with what I wanted, at least partially attributed to the way I prepare for it. More structured. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, uh, it's more, I don't know that this would be more efficient overall, but it's also more uh, accommodating to have more frequent, small, quick communication virtually than it is to do that in a in the office kind of environment. You know, the client would have to drive in or we'd have to go visit them. You know, it'd be much easier to have quick calls or Skypes or go to meetings or whatever software you use. Um, so it's definitely more efficient. I can't attribute the reasons for it, but it's persistent enough that it's true for at least me. I had a client meeting this week where they're not in Dallas. Like I've, they've always been distant client. Um, I have met them in person when we did financial planning. They actually flew into Dallas to do financial planning. Um, so we had that base, baseline, which I think is important. <coughs> but we uh, were trying to schedule a call and they ended up scheduling it over their vacation. So they actually <laughs> flew to Florida are on vacation and then that's when they did their meeting with us and they were just commenting on how nice it was they're like we don't have to take off work mm -hmm. like we can have really good just conversations like husband and wife like leading up to it and afterwards and i don't know it's kind of a neat idea of like mm -hmm. maybe the best time to have these meetings is when people are on vacation <laughs> <laughs> catch them when they're in a good mood and not stressed and <laughs> hopefully that leads to higher level thinking yeah higher level thinking so i don't know it was kind of a Huh, I might have to start recommending that for <laughs> <laughs> for some people. Lynn has wanted to do um, family meetings when people are on vacation. Naturally, all the family in yeah. town, and mm -hmm. you just visit right after and you're done mm -hmm. instead of trying to cobble together all the pieces. Of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not having the life stress that's just always in the back of your mind. Yeah, I was described once as. Uh, like going to see the financial proctologist, which is maybe the opposite <laughs> yeah. end of that spectrum. Something you know you need to do, but uh, maybe isn't fun while you're doing it. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think people do that on vacation. <laughs> Only if they have a good financial situation. Yes. Right? <laughs> uh, the client did ask me, she's like, so you're, I, what I'm getting from this is that I should be spending more money. What do people spend money on? <laughs> and the husband was like, oh boy, like, <laughs> don't answer that question. <laughs> Awesome. Any other thoughts? I mean, you guys are obviously, I think what's cool about people who are entering the profession is I think they have an entirely different perspective. They're not mm -hmm. weighed down by like the, this is how things have always been or should be. Um, so do you guys have any thoughts or? The um, couple of people that I've talked to that work more virtually seem to have been pair planners not um, lead advisors with their own client base. They seem to be supporting mm -hmm. other advisors in, in preparing the plans. Yeah. So the idea of saying from the get-go, I'm gonna start a business and it's gonna be a virtual business is a bit different. I didn't expect that coming in today. Yeah, you bring up a great point. I, I, 
Yeah, I hadn't considered it from that perspective, but absolutely there are advisors that need either overflow help or just mm -hmm. don't need a full person, or frankly, they just want good help and they don't care whether the person comes into the office or not. So there is there is a, a definite need out there. There are people that do it. There are firms that hire it. Um, yeah, and, and it fits right into all of this. Now, it's probably much less client facing. I'm sure in mm -hmm. most cases, that's more of a backstage type role. Uh, but it wouldn't have to be. You know, that would be open to your creativity and the, the firm that you were working with, you know, what their objectives were and how you could fit with them. Uh, but that is an absolutely an avenue that can be explored and is currently, you know, in place. There are people doing it, as you mentioned. Yeah. And are you, are you saying, like, they're working for advisors and then leaving and starting their own? Well, no, it sounded to me, coming in today, knowing that the yeah. topic was going to be virtual planning, I thought we're going to talk about how to be a virtual support planner. <laughs> um, and nice. the topic today was completely yeah. different, which was eye-opening, yeah. that you can start a whole business and entirely be virtual as mm -hmm. a lead advisor. Yeah, and maybe there's a hybrid approach, too, where if everyone's comfortable with it, you know, while you're building a practice, you're working for someone, and then you do have your own, well. you know, your own clients. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the stumbling block there is, you know, I think a natural tendency for a lot of managers, maybe even those that haven't managed before, is what is this person doing that I'm paying them for? You know, maybe there's concerns over security if they don't have a personal connection with you. Uh, you know, paranoia can run rampant when you are farther away and, uh, you know, that's just a challenge that you'd have to work through and find the right personality and figure out how much you need to be, you know, a, a physical slash visible presence but it absolutely can be done. And I'm sorry we didn't touch on that no, more okay. today. Yeah. yeah. Do you know anyone that uh, does that? Oh, yeah. Okay. And um, I know several people who do it full-time with different advisors. Yeah. Um, or they'll be just dedicated to one, or they'll do it like a lifestyle where they do it when... Oh, bye. Yeah. yeah, I would suggest that, uh, you know, if you reach out through a XY Planning Network or a New Planner Recruiting other groups like that, um, they would have the ability potentially to market that, you know, you're open to positions or Mike would probably just write an article about it and if people were interested, you know, he would start coordinating people together. Uh, you know, if there's a demand for it, those are the, probably the best ways to generate broader interest, you know, if you couldn't find opportunities on your own. Is that something that you're looking at exploring? I considered it for a while. I'm going back and forth between, yeah. because I want something that's very, very local. Yeah. Um, and barring that, then virtual is the next most conducive thing for my yeah. situation. Uh, yeah, most of the people I know that did it, it was uh, you know, life-changing circumstances to where they'd been with the firm and they were finding a way to make it work. Right. Uh, but clearly it could be done the other direction too. Yeah. It requires a good business to be able to delegate like that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I've got check marks by everything, everything? I wanted to talk about. I know, about. I was going to say, I think I went through everything myself too, so thank you guys for showing up. I guess you guys are already here. <laughs> thank you for still <laughs> yeah. coming. Thank you for not going away years. while we started talking. We <laughs> should have done this all virtually too. <laughs> oh, wow. We, yeah. yeah, we could. We failed there. <laughs> Once again, we want to thank everyone that came out, and we have to thank the kind folks at Caden Capital for hosting us. Thank you. Stay tuned for next week's episode, and we hope to see you all at the next FPA DFW Eurofinancial Planner Now What seminar on April 13th. 
Thanks for listening.